So today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And this is where Jesus starts to personally address the specific churches. And there are seven churches that he individually addresses. And so you might ask the question, why seven? Uh, There were more than seven, there were many more than seven churches in existence, but Jesus chose these particular seven churches, I think primarily because um, for the Apostle John, that seven is the number of completeness. So in addressing seven particular churches, Jesus is addressing all churches everywhere of all time. It turns out that these seven particular churches embody every major issue which the church has struggled in every age. And so I really want us to be open today in particular as we camp out in Ephesus in this letter that Jesus wrote to a church in Ephesus. I want you to imagine being there. I want you to imagine gathering and the, uh, the, the pastor of the church reading a letter from the Apostle John, this legendary pastor. He is the last living apostle. Reading a letter from John, uh, really from Jesus through John. I want you to imagine this sense of anticipation as they're sitting on the edge of their seats, listening to every word from Jesus through John as their pastor reads it to them. Before we jump into the scripture, let me give us a little bit of background on Ephesus, this church in the city of Ephesus. And at the time, Ephesus had a population of around 250,000 people which made it a major city. I mean, this this was a world-class city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And it was incredibly, it was, it was incredibly pagan. <laughs> One commentator says that Ephesus was a seething cauldron of cults. <laughs> uh, they, they had in Ephesus uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis, or also called uh, Diana, the temple of Artemis, which was a fertility goddess. Um, And so this culture for hundreds of years that had centered around uh, sexual perversion as a way of worshiping God, and yet here the church is in this cauldron of cults, taking root in this perverted place and not only surviving, but thriving in this polluted place. One commentator says that Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than in any other city. It was with Ephesus that Timothy was connected. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the apostle Paul um, was the, the greatest Christian that has ever lived. Uh, that it, the the Apostle Paul was used by God um, as 
as the one that led the way to start the, the early church. Uh, and so God used the Apostle Paul to write most of the New Testament. And several of the books that he wrote were to his young protege, Timothy. And so Paul was there at Ephesus longer than any other place. He was a missionary, so he traveled, right? He was an itinerant missionary. So he would spend a little time here, a little time there. He'd share the gospel here, share the gospel there. He'd start a church here, start a church there. But in Ephesus, he stayed three years, which is very unusual for the Apostle Paul. And then uh, he personally discipled Timothy and appointed Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We find Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, and the Apostle Paul had an incredibly close relationship with this church. We see this as he's giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, where they're weeping, they're clinging to each other, right? And there's such raw emotion, authentic affection, in later days, John was the leading figure in Ephesus. He became the pastor. Legend has it that John brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus and that she was buried there. And so I wanted us to get a snapshot of the incredible heritage of this church. Ephesus was the leading church in the world at that time. You think of the incredible the, the incredible history that they had, right? That so many great men and women of God that had been called to invest there, to serve there, uh, to help build this church. Henry and Richard Blackaby in their book, Flickering Lamps, they say, beautiful buildings, burgeoning attendance, and well-planned services are an abomination to him when they are achieved, achieved in a manner that dishonors God, the church at Ephesus, listen, boasted one of the most illustrious pedigrees in church history. Yet unbeknownst to them, the risen Christ was preparing to remove their lampstand if they did not repent. With this in mind, let's turn together to God's word in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who, uh, who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit empower your holy word and build up 
and bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is here pictured walking in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is walking among the churches. And we get this sense that, with this very real sense biblically, that Jesus isn't in heaven watching from a distance what's happening, but Jesus is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, that Jesus is always on patrol in his churches. I know your deeds. It wasn't secondhand knowledge that Jesus had. It was firsthand knowledge. Remember, Jesus is talking to a church. It's not an individual Christian he's talking to. He's talking to a community of faith, a group of Christians, and yet they are seen as one body. Lots of different parts that make up one body, one family. And so the first thing that really struck me was that we need to have an acute awareness of his presence. We need to have an acute awareness of his presence. Jesus in every room. Now, the church isn't a building, it's a body. But when the church gathers, there is something special that takes place. When the church comes together, there is something unique. And so Jesus is addressing the gathered group. Jesus is addressing not just an individual part of the body in their homes. He's addressing the group as they are gathered as a family. Jesus is in every room. Jesus is in the church 247-365. Jesus attends every gathering. There are no secret meetings in his church. He judges every decision. As I thought about this, I had an idea that I think churches should put an extra chair at every meeting as a reminder that Jesus is present. I know it sounds elementary. I know it sounds ridiculous. But to have this acute awareness of his presence, that as we worship, the one that we worship is present in the room. As we gather, as we deliberate, as we make decisions, right? where, where there is a chair and it's not empty, Jesus is here. And we need to constantly turn to the chair and ask, what do you think, Jesus? It sounds ridiculous, but I think it would be very helpful because we have this tendency to do business, to do the church business without an awareness of the presence. We have this tendency, and the longer that a church is in existence, the more at risk they are of operating without an awareness of the presence. Like the church in Ephesus, when you just flip on the cruise control, when you flip on the autopilot, and we're no, we, we no longer, we no longer are connected, right? We're no longer connected to the spirit, seeking his guidance for every step that we take. We need to tune in and listen to what he is saying to each individual church, 
not just back then, but here and now. It's interesting. I thought of this question. If Jesus were to write a letter to your church, what would he say? Right? And he starts here with encouragement. So the good things that most churches are doing, but we can't stop with that. You know, we have to be self-aware to the point that we acknowledge our need for correction, that we acknowledge our need for rebuke. It's not if we've drifted, but where and how we've drifted. Jesus says to this church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. These were, these were very devoted people breaking a spiritual sweat in the Lord's service. He says that I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them to be false. So the Ephesian Christians had a great work ethic. They had developed spiritual calluses on their hands because they had been in the field of the Lord plowing and planting and working. These people were not lazy. They were not idle. They weren't loitering. And Jesus said, that's a good thing. So he starts off by commending them for working so hard, for not giving up, for not quitting. He also commends them for not tolerating frogs. The Ephesian Christians did not put up with imposters. Jesus commends their intolerance of evil, listen, within the church. So you have these Ephesian Christians that are living out their faith in an incredibly perverse environment in an incredibly polluted environment, a corrupt culture. And yet, Jesus isn't judging the Ephesian culture. Jesus isn't, Jesus, Jesus isn't um, calling out all these evil things that non-Christians are doing. This is within the church. There is wickedness within the church that he's calling out. Not at all meaning the people of this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And again, Corinth was similar to Ephesus in that it was a a seething cauldron of cults, an incredibly um, perverted society. And he says to the church in Corinth, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I mean that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. You see this list where the Apostle Paul is saying, we we are to call out sin within the Christian camp. He says, don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. So Jesus advocates here in Revelation 2 a zero-tolerance policy for wicked people that are claiming 
to be Christians, claiming to be leaders in the church. He says, I know you don't tolerate evil people. These people that say they are apostles, but you have discovered that they are liars. We have a lot of people in the evangelical church. This is a quote from a pastor named Chris Brooks. We have a lot of people in the evangelical church rightfully concerned with doctrinal heresy. We analyze statements of faith, and if they are off in any way, we criticize that group. But what we have not done is treated behavioral heresy to the level that we should. And so the Ephesians had pristine doctrine. The Ephesians had rock-solid theology, but there were people within the church that were deceitful, that were twisting the truth for personal gain. Counterfeit Christians, leaders in particular, he calls them false apostles that that are liars. Those in leadership that are deceitful and deceptive and two-faced. Paul's farewell speech. We find Paul again in Ephesus longer than any other place that he stayed for three years. In his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Now I know that none of you now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So he knows he's going to his death, that his death is imminent. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Listen, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So the Apostle Paul warns them, the Ephesian elders, the same church, and many of the same people that Jesus is now talking to in Revelation chapter 2. And he says that, be on your guard, be shepherds. That's what he tells the elders, be shepherds of God's sheep. He bought them with his blood, but he has entrusted their care to the under-shepherds, to the pastors, to the elders. He says that ferocious wolves will come in, vicious wolves, imposters, religious mercenaries who fleece the flock. One pastor put it this way, sheep love the shepherd and hate the wolves. Wolves love the sheep but hate the shepherd. Sheep are used in the Bible as the, one, the, the animal that describes humanity. But they are, they are helpless. But sheep, the only, the only defense they have against the wolves is flight. They run. That's the only way that they could escape an attack. Sheep are prey animals. When they are faced with danger, their natural instinct is to flee. Their strategy is to use avoidance. Domesticated sheep have come to rely on man for protection 
from predators. Sheep need a shepherd. And so the the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesian elders to to watch over the sheep, to care for the sheep. And in particular, he says, wolves will come. It's inevitable that wolves will try to infiltrate the flock. And we all need someone that is watching our backs. We need a shepherd. God appoints people. He gifts people to be under shepherds. Not everyone is called to do this. We all have a unique we all have a unique calling, a unique gifting, but there are those that God calls. And, and Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He appointed Timothy as the first bishop of Ephesus, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We all need those who stand guard at night. We need someone who guides and protects, someone that feeds us, that nourishes us, someone that corrects us, that that comes to find us when we lose our way, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's the human condition. We are all prone to wonder. We also need someone that is watching for the wolves. We need a shepherd that does not tolerate the wolves We need a shepherd that does not attempt to domesticate the wolves. We need a shepherd that shoots the wolves for the good of the sheep. This requires one thing of God's people, discernment. It's a spiritual test more than a doctrinal test. Again, these are people within the Ephesian church that had signed the statement of faith. They had infiltrated and were now corrupting the church from within that were eroding the church from within, weakening the church from within. We require those with the gift of discernment. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate those with the gift of discernment. Now we all, every Christian has the Holy Spirit, but I believe those, there are those among us that have a special sensitivity to the Spirit. And those are people that, I want close to me. Those are people I want in my inner circle. And I hope you do too. To recognize those that have a special sensitivity, that have the gift of discernment, and to invite them in and to listen when they speak. Jesus says they've not grown weary. They've not become discouraged. They've not quit. They are tenacious and resilient. And this is a good thing. So, so far, so good. They're probably feeling pretty affirmed. Let's go back in our mind's eye to that room where they are reading this letter from Jesus through the legendary Pastor John, the Apostle John. And they're on the edge of their seats. And as this Jesus is encouraging them, Jesus is affirming them. And they're looking at each other and they're just like, yes, Jesus, he's, he's seen our labor and he does see it. Right? Jesus sees the sacrifices we make. Jesus sees the service, even when it goes uncelebrated. Those that have worked hard behind the scenes, those that are serving behind the scenes, those that are laboring, these volunteers that are putting in hours and hours. Jesus sees what often goes uncelebrated. 
So, so far, so good, but Jesus isn't done. He said, yet this I hold against you. I want you to imagine the collective gasp as this part was read. (gasps) What? But this I hold against you. You have departed from your first love. The Greek word translated departed can actually be used of divorce. So the imagery here is very strong. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. You have abandoned your first love, which means your foremost love, your best love, your paramount love, your supreme love, your number one love. Remember now, Jesus is speaking to a church, a community of people that have together lost their first love. Their love has grown cold. They have allowed their affection for Jesus and for each other to erode over time. By the way, those are always connected, right? The the, the vertical always affects the horizontal. So when we began to lose our passion for Jesus, it is reflected in how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you want a spiritual diagnostic, just look at your relationships with other Christians. And if you have fractured relationships with other Christians, that is an indication that there is a problem with the vertical relationship with Jesus. They had allowed their affection to erode. And remember, Jesus is writing to second and third generation Christians. These are people that had believed the gospel through the witness of those converted through the ministry of the apostles. They're not that far removed from the actual physical ministry of Jesus. They are definitely not that far removed from the actual physical ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle John is still alive. He's the one that wrote the letter that Jesus used to write this letter to the church in Ephesus. How much more are we in danger of losing heart? How much more are we, thousands of years later, in danger of losing the essence of church. Here we are, almost 2,000 years after Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus for drifting from their first love. And, and what, what I think Jesus wants them, wants us to hear is that hard work isn't enough. We have calluses on our hands from hard work, but we also have calluses on our hearts. Having the right doctrine isn't enough. First Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul, again, is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's what Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus, and he's telling us now, thousands of years later, is that the danger is to flip on the cruise control and to go through the motions and it becomes empty ritualism where we have the right doctrine, but we've lost the right heart. 
It's not just people hearing the truth. It's people experiencing the truth. Because of the love of Christ that should be so evident in his church. The message paraphrase puts 1 Corinthians 13 this way. No matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. And so to love Jesus more, to love Jesus more than your heritage, to love Jesus more than your history, to love Jesus more than your policies, to love Jesus more than your traditions, to love Jesus more than your friends, to love Jesus more than your reputation, to love Jesus more than your politics, to love Jesus more than your education, to love Jesus more than your career, to love Jesus more than your hobbies, to love Jesus more than your possessions, to love Jesus more than your spouse, to love Jesus more than your kids, to love Jesus more than your grandkids, to love Jesus more than your life. This is what Jesus requires. We love because he first loved us. And so our love is a reaction to his. As we understand the gospel, as we stand at the foot of the cross, as we stand in front of the empty tomb, divine love erupts in our soul, and fills our lives. Jesus demands our supreme affection. He demands to be our primary passion. And many, if we were honest today, would say we have crowded hearts and that Jesus is on our list, but he's not number one. The Ephesian Christians had allowed activity to replace affection. They had become a machine that was efficient but heartless. And the solution, Jesus gives it to us twice. Twice he tells them to repent. Repentance is the solution. He really wants them to hear this and he wants us to hear this. So he repeats it. Repent and do the things you did at first. Consider how far you've fallen. See, it's a slow fade. It's a subtle shift over time. That's why we have to make constant course corrections. Because we drift. We all drift. We wonder. We're sheep. We're sheeple. <laughs> we wonder. And we need to constantly stop and evaluate our souls, the direction of our lives. We must first realize there is a problem. We must first awaken from our slumber. The repetition of countless Sundays that have lulled us to sleep. We need an alarm clock of the spirit to jolt us awake. We need a prophetic slap to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. This is an emergency break moment for the church in Ephesus. And I think this is an emergency break moment for many churches today. Jesus gives them a warning and he mentions the Nicolaitans. We don't know much at all about these Nicolaitans, but it says that Jesus hates, Jesus hates the Nicolaitans. Now, when Jesus hates something, we definitely need to pay attention. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. So I guess more specifically, he hates what they're doing. He hates the damage that is being done to his body, to his bride through the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans aren't a separate denomination. Right? They are a part of the church that Jesus is calling out. The Nicolaitans, we'll talk more about them um, in the future because Jesus addresses them again when he's talking to a different church. But we need to pay attention, right? We got to be careful here that this doesn't become heresy hunting. You know, there's this tension. There's this tension of, of guarding the flock from false teaching. Those that infiltrate and hurt God's people from within. Those that lie and deceive the wolves in sheep's clothing that are ferocious, that are ruthless. And yet we have to be careful that we're, we don't become these arrogant heresy hunters, you know, where we've arrived, like the Ephesian church with this incredible heritage where they, they in some ways had this underlying pride of their history. And we can't allow ourselves, right? There's two ditches here. One, right, is where you just tolerate wickedness. You tolerate it, right? And, and um, in tolerating it, we condone it. Uh, this behavioral heresy that's happening in churches that isn't being called out. So there's this ditch over here where we just look the other way, but then there's this ditch over here where you have heresy hunters and they have these clipboards and they're walking around everywhere and they're evaluating every other group, every word of every song, every word of every sermon that different preachers and different leaders over the years have put out. You have to be careful to avoid both ditches. Let me conclude here with Jesus giving them a dire warning. And I think he gives us a warning. He says this to them, change or else. <laughs> Listen, he threatens to remove his presence from this church. This is a church with a rich history. This is at the time, the leading church in the world. And yet, they cannot bank on their history for God's approval. They have to be constantly connected to what God is doing right now in this moment. And Jesus says, change or else. Here's a, here's a terrifying possibility. Jesus removes his presence and few people notice. We go on as usual. The tragic reality is that there are churches that refuse to repent and therefore Jesus has removed his presence. Yet the organ or the organization continues to operate. Just because you slap a steeple on a building does not make it a church. The utility bills get paid, but there is no spiritual electricity. The church is personified in the Bible as the bride of Christ. 
So if you look at this from a marriage perspective, when Jesus says in this passage that you departed from your first love, and that word is very strong in the original language, it could describe a divorce. How happy would we be in a marriage if our spouse did and said all the right things, but you knew in your heart they no longer loved you? Some of you have been in the relationship that I'm describing. It's formal. It's, you know, you're no longer husband and wife. You're roommates. You're partners in a in a business of paying the bills and, and raising kids. You've lost the love. Whatever brought you together in the first place, that, that love that drove you to this person, that love that was overwhelming, that love that led both of you to an altar where you said, I want to give myself to this person for the rest of my life. But it, over the years, as months turn into years and years turn into decades, that love is a, if it's not tended, it slowly erodes. You got to stoke the coals. You got to feed the fire or it will die. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church in Ephesus. Do the things you did at first. When you were passionate for me, when you were in love with me, when you were overwhelmed with my presence. What if we tried to tell others about this joyless marriage? Do you think it won't do you think it would create a desire within within them to be married? No. <laughs> it would be a marriage in name only, a loveless partnership, much like a church whose lampstand has been removed. And so as we wrap this up today, I want to drive it home for all of us. In verse 7, he closes out here. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message translation puts it this way. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the Spirit blowing through the churches. The solution is repentance. Repentance means to pull the emergency brake and to change directions, to stop and to change to repent. Some of us today need to repent of our cold-hearted Christianity, to repent and recover our passion. Oh God, light the fire in my heart again to stoke the coals, the embers of faith that have been buried under a mountain of ash, that the winds of the Spirit would blow over that ember and fan it into a flame once more. Others need to repent and receive Jesus for the very first time. The letter ends, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is the cross of Christ. The empty tomb is the portal to paradise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
we bow our heads and humble our hearts. And God, we, as best as we know how, repent. Lord, we, we pull the emergency brake. We come to a screeching halt. And we change direction. God, forgive us. God, forgive us for turning on the autopilot. God, forgive us for turning on the cruise control. God, forgive us for working so hard for you. And we have calluses to prove it. But yet, our hearts have grown cold. And so light the fire again, oh God. Light the fire in our hearts. And restore our passion. And Lord, for those that do not know Jesus, and they're on the outside looking in, oh God, I, I pray that they would come to the tree of life, which is the cross of Christ. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they would place their trust in you. Lord, seeing that demonstration of divine love, the ultimate display of divine love, as you died for our sins, that would, that would cause an eruption of love in our heart. Lord, that would fill us and flow through us into the lives of others around us. Your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God, we repent together. We repent, O oh Lord for not having you as number one in our life. Some of us have you on the list somewhere, but you're not number one. Lord, even some of us have you as number two, but that num that's not good enough. You demand our supreme affection. You require to be our, you require to be our primary passion. And so Lord, help us, God. Help us as Christians and help us as churches to not just believe the right things in our minds, but to have the right heart towards you and towards each other. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.